So what's faith? Uh, that's what we need to work with today. Faith is a word that we use a lot, um, even uh, outside of religious places, we use it a lot. Faith is something we keep, right? Hey, man, you got to keep the faith, right? Yeah, just keep the faith. Then we hear that like if you're losing a basketball game, but also we hear it in church, hey, you got to keep the faith. So something we keep, faith is something we keep. It's uh, something we have. Do you have faith? Do I have faith? Have you lost faith? Do you have it? Is it gone? Is it here? Where is it? Something we have. Um, something that can be strong or weak, right? Do you, are you a person of faith? Ah, but my weakest faith. Or my, faith my weakest faith. <laughs> Might be like that today. I don't know. My, uh, my faith is weak. Ah, that person, they have such a strong faith. I mean, do you know anything in the scriptures that would, that would say that the strength of your faith has anything to do with, like, your anything? <laughs> Isn't it Jesus' strength that we're counting on? Something that can do work, right? Faith is something we count on to, to make things happen. We can move mountains. We can uproot trees. And around here, I wish we could just keep a few trees alive. They just keep... <laughs> What is it? You're a person of faith. What's that mean? Last week we talked about hope. And hope is this wonderful, this wonderful assurance of glory. That the new heaven and new earth are not just science fiction, maybe someday we wish it was true, rather in the manger, in the, you know, the, we didn't talk about it uh, last week, but uh, in the transfiguration, in the, the resurrection, in the ascension of Jesus, we have a lot of like evidence that, that there is something waiting for us. Jesus looked at his disciples and said, I'm going to go and make a place. And then Revelation 21, he goes, it's finished. Come on in. How neat. Hope. We talked about, man, if you really believe that, like it's got to change you. C- certainly today's problems are not what they were without that hope. And it's appropriate that faith should follow hope closely on its heels. Because as we talk about the glory of the new heaven and new earth, we, we talk about the sure reality that someday we'll, we'll be in a place a lot like Eden, a place made brand new, a place where we are in the presence of God in a way that we have never been before, where our heart was meant to be there. You know, it's the place where we belong says the scholar John Foreman from Switchfoot. And that's a great song, Where where We Belong. Just go look it up. That's a great song. Um, A place where we belong, where we're satisfied in a good, a tov world. We ended last week thinking about that hope with a little application. But as we light the faith candle today, and we tell our story, children and we bring them up in the faith it's as we pass the faith on to the next generation i'm reminded that faith is the necessary application of hope if you have hope you will have faith it follows it is sincere faith that always shows up um, following sincere hope because hope changes us are you with me that you can't be assured of the plan that God has for you and then live the same ever again. 
So as we remember this awesome reality of our future hope, it necessarily causes us, causes in us great faith. There's a parable in Luke 18, and you know, January, we're going to hop back into Luke, and so I'll save the, the talking points or the teaching points of, of the parable for when we get there. But, but Luke 18 um, is the, has, includes the parable of the persistent widow. And it starts in Luke 18.1. If you have a Bible and you want to turn there, you can just refer to it. But 18.1, it says, uh, and he told them a parable to the effect that they always ought to pray and not lose heart. So two parts. You always ought to pray, that's something you do, and then not lose heart is something that's inside you. And then he tells the story of this persistent widow, and like I said, we'll save the, the teaching points for later, but, but this widow continues going back to the wicked judge and demanding justice until finally she gets it, and the parable ends with this question that seems like it's so out of nowhere that some commentators have been like, this got imported. Like, there's no way this was original. I think it is original. I think it's the point of the story. And, and how Luke records it is Jesus saying, nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth. And some people have thought, oh, well, the son of man, he's talking about then, right there. He's like speaking in the third person. He obviously is the son of man. And he's gone, hey, does anybody have faith around here? But I don't know, because the parable is about this persistent widow that keeps going back, keeps going back. And not only that, but when the, the phrase son of man comes up, we're always thinking eschatology. We're always thinking, ah, that's what the Messiah was called in Daniel 7, where the Ancient of Days and the Son of Man come to bring about the new reality. And so Jesus says, when the Son of Man comes, and the Son of Man was like this word that they would have all, like if I use, <laughs> I shouldn't do this. <laughs> I'm gonna anyway. Um, yeah, if I go like you don't wanna be left behind, you guys all know exactly what, you guys all know exactly what the story I'm talking about, right? Whether we agree, whether we disagree, whether we want to laugh or talk, whatever, however that goes, that you know what I'm talking about. Son of man was sort of like that. They, Jesus uses the word son of man, and he, we know we're talking about the, the, the ultimate reality that the Messiah is going to bring in. And, and, and the question, as Jesus kind of shakes his head, is like when the son of man comes, when it all wraps up, when this new heaven and new earth, the new Jerusalem, and all this becomes reality, Will Jesus find any faith on the earth at all? That is a sobering question. Certainly he will find religion. Certainly he will find legalism. Certainly he will find people who think they're right. But will he find faith? And I wonder if we could just commit ourselves to even if it's just the 70 of us, he'll find 70 people of faith. Here's the big idea. Faith. Faith is such a big topic. We couldn't possibly, this is not all that faith is, but, but this is the aspect of faith I'd like to focus on today. Faith means obedience while waiting. Faith means doing the things you are supposed to be doing while you're waiting for that ultimate reality to take place. Faith is not just something you do. That is legalism. If your faith is only behavior, that's legalism. You don't have a heart for anybody. You don't love anybody. You don't have a heart to love and to submit to God. There's nothing going on inside you except self-righteousness and pride. But you sure look like a religious person. Maybe even from the outside, somebody would say, wow, that's a man of great faith. Now you're just a man who thinks a lot about yourself. So it's not just something you do. 
But faith is also not just something you think. That's, I don't know what that is. It's either philosophy or theology or theological philosophy or philosophical theology. I don't know what. But we all know people. We've all been guilty of being somebody who thinks something profoundly, but my actions don't match it. And so we can be theologically or philosophically very sound and it not be actual faith. Faith is not just something you do and it's not just something you think, but it's rather faith is something you believe so deeply that it changes your behavior. Faith is something that is so ingrained in you that you think it, it starts inside. It's something that you have come to understand and believe like that there is a new, better reality that Jesus is preparing for us, that the manger was real, that the cross is real, that the resurrection is real, that we live in people who have our, uh, we, we, we live as people who are sure that we've been transferred from the, the kingdom of sin and death into the kingdom of light and love, that this is our reality now and that someday there's going to be a good world where our hearts are satisfied, like that has to hit your feet. It can't just be something you think. To speak very practically, I don't know how you could think that and be mean. You with me? So faith is something you believe so deeply it changes your behavior. It's something you act out. It's an inside reality. I almost just fell off the whole stage. You see that? I know. <laughs> it's an inside reality. It's something you think that bubbles out in the way you live. It manifests itself in the way you live. It's not just cold religion. It's not just heady philosophy. It's the joining of a thought life and behavior that is consistent and has integrity. And I think in a world where we live more and more able to hide who we really are, this is a more difficult concept. Sometimes I feel a little bit jealous of the people who first had these writings, who are first hearing the story of Jesus. And it's like, look, I live in a Capernaum's village of, I don't know, 150 people, and we all know each other, and you can hear the neighbors snore. Like, there's, there's no getting away with anything, but now we can live such private lives, live very much two lives, the life that we let everybody else see, which might seem very buttoned up and put together, and then another life that is inside us. And conversely, we can live a life of deep personal devotion and love for God that does not show anywhere in our, in our outside life. And faith has to include both those pieces. An inside reality, something I think that bubbles out into the way I live, things I do. So Luke 18, 8 is asking, when Jesus comes back, when it's time for God and man to finally dwell together like they did in Eden, fully, like a bride and a bridegroom, with no more suffering, will he find people so eager for that, that they are preparing, they're living like uh, they actually expect to meet Jesus sometime soon? Or will he find people who might be religious but who live lives that don't make sense for somebody that knows that they are actually in the kingdom of God. I love all this bride and bridegroom stuff. And, you know, I think it's kind of reversed. You know, the dude now, you know, today the way we do weddings, the dude's off playing golf. And if his buddies can get him in a suit by one in the afternoon, he's prepared, right? Or the, 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 the bride is doing all of this preparation. But it was very much flipped in uh, the first century because the, the guy had to make a home. He had to make a house and, and get his act together. It's not a bad idea, man. Um, had, had to get his act together and make not just a, a place, but like a whole life to invite this young woman to join him in. And so he would very frequently go off to make this life. And then he would come back in sort of a parade with his buddies like, hey, 
I'm ready for you now. I've done the preparation. The engagement is complete. I've got a house. The seeds are planted. We can, you know, go and just start our lives together. And Jesus is using that model and going, what would it be like if that bridegroom had been away preparing, 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 and come back and the bride's like, was that still happening? Because have you met Trevor? (laughs) He's really hunky. Lives next door. I'm having second thoughts. When Jesus comes back, what will he find from his bride? Hope is the knowledge of salvation, the confidence that the grave is not our end, but rather a door into the world where we actually belong, that we will actually see the realized new heaven and new earth, actually be with God, and that we are really citizens now of this kingdom this family right now, all of that has to change our behavior, doesn't it? That's faith. Faith is not earning. It's never that we do things so that we will inherit the kingdom of God. But grace demands a response, does it not? Have you never felt the sting of unrequited love? I think that might be the the, the piece of our lives that most connects with what God's experience is with, with humans. It's just unrequited love. Just I'm just loving you and loving you and loving you and so few love me back, right? Do you remember Bonhoeffer writing about cheap grace? Can I read you a quote from, yeah, from Bonhoeffer? Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. Forgiveness without change in your life. Do you have to change before God forgives you? No, we talk about this all the time in here. You don't get your act together and come to Jesus. You just come to Jesus. But Jesus wants you to get your act together. Baptism without church discipline. Communion without confession. Absolution without, profound, without personal confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship. Grace without the cross. Grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. Costly grace is the treasure in the field. For the sake of it, a man will go and sell all that he has. It is the pearl of great price to buy, um, to buy which the merchant will sell all his goods. It is the kingly rule of Christ for whose sake a man will pluck out the eye that is causing him to stumble. It is the call of Jesus at which the disciple leaves his nets and follows him. That dude could write. There's another parable that comes to my mind when I think about faith, and, and it has everything to do with this wedding motif, this bride and bridegroom. And it's, it's found in, in Matthew, and it's the parable of the ten virgins or the ten bridesmaids. And you remember this story that, that a, bridegroom, a bridegroom has gone off to make a life for his bride. And and the day is approaching. We don't know exactly when. Can you imagine like they're not tracking each other on find my phone or whatever? That's crazy. Um, but we don't know exactly when this guy's coming back. And so all of, all of the, the bride's friends are out to arrive and join the, join the celebration, join the party that will come in and, and make for a, a wedding ceremony, a wedding feast. And it gets late. We don't know when he's coming. And it gets late and they all fall asleep. But half of these young women have brought extra oil. They're prepared. They have done something to prepare. And the others have not. 
and somebody announces at midnight, the bridegroom is coming. And they all wake up, and half of them find that they're not prepared. And they say, hey, those of you that were prepared, can we have some of your oil so our lamps can be lit up too? And those say, no, there won't be enough for all of us. Go and buy your own oil. And while they're gone, the bridegroom comes. And the point of the story is that it is possible to not be prepared for the coming of Jesus. When, and again, it is so easy to talk about how Jesus wouldn't find faith in our culture. We're not even going to talk about that. I care about my heart. I care about yours. Are you with me? Do I say this every once in a while? The problem is not sin in the culture. The problem is sin in the church. The problem is not a culture that doesn't honor God. The problem is a church that will honor God. If Jesus came back today, would he find faith in us? Faith is obedience in the middle of waiting. Even as you're tired, even as you're not off, are you waiting? Faith always gets talked about this way in the scriptures, and, and we don't give it credit for that. Think about the passages that come to your mind when we talk about what faith means. And, you know, I thought we could, we could go all around Hebrews 11, or we could just spend some time in, um, in Hebrews 10 and 11 and 12. So let's just do that. Hebrews 11, 1 says, let me, uh, let, me, let me open it up. I only have most of it memorized. It's also a joke. I don't have any. Hebrews 11.1 1 gives us like our most common, like this is what we know faith means. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. Verse 2 follows, for by it the people of old received their commendations. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made um, out of things that are visible. You know, if, if we just pluck that out, if we just make that like the home the home screen on our phone, just like faith. Uh, faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. If we just make that a generation ago, we would have said make it a bumper sticker. I don't know. You knit it on a pillow. You put it on some awesome piece of driftwood and hang it up in your house. Whatever we do with pithy sayings like this these days, if we just pluck this out, we could really say this is all internal stuff. Look. Look, in my heart, I trust that there's things I can't see. We just did that with the little scrolly thing for the kids, right? Do you see? Well, it's there. Do you believe it? You can't see it, but you trust it. There you go. That sounds like all interior stuff. It's something we come to know and believe. By the way, before I rant some more, do, do you see the connection between hope and faith? That, hope is the, uh, that faith is the assurance of things hoped for. It's as hope plants itself deep in us that faith grows. But if we just take this on its own, we can kind of make it seem like I am in my heart, by myself, assured of eternity with Jesus, the things that are hoped for. I have a deep conviction that God is real, even though I can't see him. That must be faith. Faith might just be me sitting around thinking about God, just all by myself, not doing anything good in the world, not, not, nothing changing about my behavior, nothing changing, but I believe in God. I've confessed with my mouth and believe in my heart. And yet, if we read either before or after this, we're just not left with that. If we put this passage in any kind of context at all, we see it says something 
incredibly different. Look what came before it. I love me a good since therefore passage. Look, um, and we won't, we won't cover all this because it's a lot, but Hebrews 10, 19. Why don't you look up there? Um, Hebrews 10, 19 starts and it says, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, do you have confidence that you enter the presence of God because of the blood of Jesus? You do. Of course you do. Um, since we trust the resurrection, Keep reading. By the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. Do you believe that as the curtain was torn and the curtain that is the flesh of Christ was broken for you? We're about to take communion. Do you believe that it is the body of Jesus that made a way for you to have this relationship with God? Of course you do. That's why we all showed up early on a Sunday morning. And since we have a great high priest, a great priest over the house of God, do you believe that Jesus also functions as our high priest, that it is him that we, know, we don't no longer need priests that are administrating at an, offer, offer at an altar and sacrificing regularly, but that Jesus was not only the once for all sacrifice, but also the priest who administers that sacrifice. Are you with me? That's so cool. How has it changed your life? It just doesn't leave us there. But there's always, since this, since this, since this, since Jesus has done everything necessary for us to live at peace with God. And again, I just have to, I just have to stop and go, now, I know you believe this on Sunday morning, but is this something in the worst day of your week you still are clinging to? Is this something that you believe every day? Do you live fully convinced that Christ is in you and you are in Christ? That the new heaven and earth is being prepared for us? Let me ask you the question again. How has knowing that Jesus is who Jesus is changed you? How has it affected your behavior? How has it made the world a better place? Or is your definition of faith just you sitting around believing in God? Has it only been an internal reality or has it changed your behavior? Where were we? Verse 21. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, here we go. Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the day more as you see the day drawing quickly. When we have these, since Jesus is who he is, since you trust him, what comes next? Well, it has to be behavior. It has to be the way you live. We have to connect the way we live with what we believe, with what we think. So he's going to, the author of Hebrews is, is going to make this clearer uh, over the next couple chapters, but he just starts off by saying, so draw near, draw near. Man, how many uh, times do you feel the temptation to say, I believe in Jesus, but I just am resting in my security in him in such a way that I don't think I can lose my salvation. And so because of that, I'm not spending any time building in a relationship with him. Man, we can't let, how do I say this? We can't let legalism be what reigns in us, but if we love the Lord, we have to draw near to him. 
Verse 23 says, hold fast to the confession of hope without wavering. Again, hope and faith clearly connected. Hold fast to the confession of hope. Um, as we mature in Christ, do you remember being young in the Lord and, and every news story and every philosophy class at college or whatever it was, like totally wrecked your faith. Hold fast. This takes some toughness, some courage. It's not just you sitting around believing in Jesus. Verse 24 then says, hit you right in the heart and says, consider how to stir one another up in love and good works. And love is always active. You can't have love without action. So if you believe who Jesus is, we could start just with our home church here, but we could extend that to believers in our town, in our world, and we could extend it to our neighborhoods and our friends and the people at the office too. And, and the, the truth is, if you believe that the body of Christ made a way for you to have communion with God, that has to, what faith means is that bubbles out in loving your neighbor in practical ways. It is not just you sitting in your living room believing in God. Rather, it is you sitting in your living room believing in God in such a powerful way that you go, I have to bless somebody and I have to do it now. Isn't that interesting? Love. Remember that love is the mark of discipleship. Here's how people will know your mind if you love each other. It's not mental assent. It's never like, did you pass the ordination board? <laughs> it's never like, do you have a proper uh, doctrine you know, of, of the atonement or whatever? Rather, it's do you love people in practical ways? Not doctrinal accuracy, not church affiliation. In fact, I would tell you this, and you've heard me say this before, but if, if studying doctrine doesn't make you more loving, you should probably stop. <laughs> it's making you, it's puffing you up. Studying who Jesus is is going to make you more loving, or it's not faith. Even the author of Hebrews says, all the way down to good works, see how we could love each other so much that we are... Per, are performing good works. You know, I, the questions we kind of always revolve around in here, and COVID has been brutal on this, by the way. I just, uh, we've taken steps back in, in, in these questions, but my, the questions that always motivate me just in the local level is, first of all, to whom are we called? Are we just called to us? Or are we called to not just Delray Woods, but this neighborhood, right? Like, is faith bubbling out of us so much that the neighborhood is being blessed? And then the other question that I always, uh, I always like revolve around is if we stopped being a church, would anyone but us care, right? Do we matter? Has faith hit us in such a point that, that we're blessing other people in practical ways? This is the natural progression. Knowledge, hope, and faith expressed in love. Man, 26 and 27 are crazy, and I'm just going to read enough of this to, to have you go, wait, say more, but I'm not going <laughs> to. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the uh, knowledge of truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, 
but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversary. Look how close that is to like the curtain is open and you can have a relationship with God. He says this, look, there are some people that what has happened in their life is they've come to know the truth about Jesus and so the law doesn't work for them anymore. They've come to understand that the law was never gonna save them. Being good was never gonna be the path to righteousness. But as they deliberately continue sinning, they also demonstrate that while they have set the law aside, they have not replaced that with a love for Christ that has impacted the way they live, and they are really stuck. What's left after that? If you don't respond to the law, you set the law aside, and then you don't respond in love and, and, and obedience to Christ, what's left for you? And then we could walk through the rest of Hebrews 11. So that's what's before this passage in, in Hebrews 11 that is our great definition of faith. And, and then Hebrews 11, you know the story. It's the great, uh, you know, in Awana, you call it the hall of faith. It's the story of how, uh, of how people demonstrated their faith in the Old Testament. And there's a lot of stuff God does and there's a lot of stuff that people do, but it's always the demonstration. It's always that this relationship of trusting God and God loving the people ends up in stuff happening. It's never just Abraham sat there, uh, you know, in his homeland in Mesopotamia and really trusting that if he wanted to, he could follow God because God is Yahweh's the real one. It was never that. It was always, no, he got up and he moved. He put Isaac on the altar. And then there's the story of Enoch where we don't really know anything about Enoch. It's like, well, Enoch had faith and God took him. And you go, okay, I'm not sure what happened with Enoch. But still, it is this understanding of, of a, a relationship that has behavior attached. And then, you know, we hear the story of Abel. And we hear all of these stories that all have people believed something and so they did something. People had an internal reality and expressed itself publicly. Are you a man of faith? Are you a woman of faith? Man, if I could just wrap up just thinking a little bit about Hebrews 12. After this great blow-by-blow blow of, of Old Testament saints who expressed their belief in God in practical ways, we have this um, incredible passage that, I mean, we should just read this once a Sunday. It's so beautiful. Therefore, because there, there's another therefore, in light of all that, who Jesus is, what it means to respond to him, what it means to have faith that works itself out. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin that clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Therefore, in light of all of that, my friends, would you lay aside every weight? Are there things in your heart and in your head that are holding you down? And, and you know, these, sin is the next category. This is, um, these are not necessarily things that are sinful, but there are things that need to be set aside in your life. Maybe there's something like busyness, but maybe it's something like past trauma, Maybe it's something like past failure. Maybe it's something like past success that is weighing you down. 
that is stopping you from expressing the faith, the things you believe in practical ways as you follow Jesus. Lay aside every weight, and then it says lay aside the sin that clings so, co- so closely. Anybody memorize this? The, the sin that is an encumbrance? It's a great way to put it. It's like trying to run a race with your ankles taped together. You know, grace is not opposed to effort, but grace is opposed to earning, says Dallas Willard, right? And it is possible for us to say things like, because we've lost an internet fight or we made somebody mad at some point, and so we go, you know what, faith is just going to be a personal thing. I'm just not going to talk about it. I'm not going to demonstrate it. It's going to be something that's just in here. I just, don't, I just don't know if the Bible leaves you there at all. Lay aside the weights that lay you down and then know that sin is a big deal. Sin will stop you from running this race that's marked out for you. You're going to have to mature. You're going to have to get better. Not so that Jesus will love you, but because Jesus has died for you. It says run with endurance. There's going to be some heartache. There's going to be some falling. There's going to be some difficulties along the way. Run with endurance. When Jesus comes, will he find us waiting obediently? Or will he find us sitting in our living rooms going, we didn't do anything, but we had great faith. And then it says, fix your eyes on Jesus. Man, not on a social movement, not on the talking head on your television, not on your best friend or your favorite hobby. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Lighthouse, this is how we live. Eyes on Jesus and nothing else. Faith demands faithfulness. Are you a woman of faith? Are you a man of faith? I wonder if I could make it as practically as possible, if we could just sum up all of this by saying, look, if you're a person of faith, it means this, turn from sin. Do you remember Jesus said, hey, if you need to, if you need to cut out your, uh, gouge out your eye or cut off your hand, go away, go, or go ahead. That's rabbinic hyperbole. We'd all be blind. Um, and yet, do you see the severity? I can't imagine a savior who would say, Um, whatever you need to do to turn from sin, do it. And then go, you know, faith is just you sitting in your living room believing things. Turn from sin. Fulfill the Great Commission. Some of you really impress me. Um, Some of you have, there's a few of you in the room that every time I talk to you, I just walk away convicted because you have a heart to spread the gospel. Well, so many of us, myself included, spend way too much time just going, you know, I'm going to love my neighbor, I'm going to help the poor, but I'm going to keep my mouth shut because I'm tired of getting in arguments or whatever it is. And I don't, nobody ever got argued into the kingdom of God. That's not what we're doing, but we do have to find a way to fulfill the Great Commission. Turn from sin, fulfill the Great Commission, and take care of the poor. What if we just said, this is what faith looks like? Just in its most practical terms, turn from sin, fulfill the Great Commission, and take care of the least of these. When Jesus comes back, will he find us doing that? In your life, in mine, in the life of our church, in the life of your peer group. Are we people of faith? Or we just think stuff about God? So why faith? 
Why a faith candle at Christmas? Well, this is the amazing thing to me, or the, the reason Jesus is the only, only one I could ever follow, because the manger so articulately expresses the love and leadership of God as he, as he calls us to f- express faith in action. God calls us to deny ourselves, but we will never deny ourselves more than the move from heaven to the manger, especially if we include the cross. He calls us to love one another, but we will never find a greater expression of love than the manger and the cross. We're told to turn from sin, and in Jesus we find the one who was tempted in every way like we are, and yet was without sin. We do not serve a Savior who only says, serve me and obey me, but rather says, follow me. Sacrifice like I did. Live like me. Love the Father like me. You know, we could, it's more a Wednesday night thing, but we could talk a lot, theologians talk about the faith of Jesus. Did Jesus have faith? You go, whoa, he's God. Can God have faith? You go, well, in his humanity, could he see the Father? Jesus lived the life that we, so we could follow him, the life of example, so we could live like that. And that's faith. We're just going to take a minute. We're going to sing another song. We're going to invite you guys up to take the communion elements. And communion, it it fits so wonderfully with with Christmas. (laughs) Fits so wonderfully with a discussion about, uh, about faith expressed in actions. We eat and we drink to remember not what Jesus felt, but what Jesus did. Are you with me? And then he calls us. To not only celebrate the fact that we are saved because of his actions, but then says, would you please in humility walk like I did? We commit to be people who will believe in Jesus' past work so profoundly that it gives us great hope in his future work so fully that we will love each other, we will turn from sin, we will care for the least of these, and we will confidently wait for him to come back.